When I was 10 years old, um, my entire life changed. Um, when I was 10, I experienced something that I'd never experienced before and was exposed to something that, that I had no idea even existed. Uh, and it was one of those things where it was like all of a sudden my eyes were open to this whole new world. Um, when I was 10 years old, I saw Star Wars for the first time. So I know some of you guys are like, what, really? That's, that's Star Wars? Yes. When I was 10, Star Wars was the greatest thing I had ever seen. Like, it was incredible. I remember being a kid and being so excited about these movies. I bought in from the first minute. The first time you see Darth Vader and he's like, you know, and you got Luke Skywalker and you got crazy old Ben Kenobi and Han Solo and Chewbacca and all this stuff. I'm really nerding out here and a lot of you guys are losing respect for me. I don't care. I love it. Like, it was incredible when I was 10 years old and I watched Star Wars several times over and over and over again. And then I found out something even more incredible. There was a second Star Wars movie, like another whole movie, same characters, different story, and it continued on from what the story that I had loved. And then there was a third one, and they brought Ewoks in, and it ruined it. But the the second one was incredible. I just remember being so excited to think, like, there's more? Like, there's more to the story than what I've just seen here? This morning... We're going to start looking at the book of Acts. And if you'll follow me here, this is kind of a rough illustration. If you'll follow me here. Acts is really a sequel to the gospel of Luke. Luke is one of the writers of the gospels. And he writes the gospel that is his namesake, Luke. And at the end of Luke, he kind of leaves it at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The book of Luke tells us about Jesus' birth, his life, his ministry, his death on the cross, and his resurrection. But we get nothing in Luke's gospel about what happens after the resurrection of Jesus. Sometimes in the church, this happens on Easter. We come to the church, we hear about the resurrection on Easter, and we should. The resurrection makes all the difference in our faith. If Jesus is not risen, we are of all men to be most pitied. So we preach on the resurrection, but then oftentimes we never tell the other side of the story. We never get to hear about what happens after Jesus rises from the dead. What happens to Peter? What happens to these men and women who followed them? What does Jesus teach them about? So what we wanted to do was continue on in this series that will take place over the next several months as we walk through what happens after Jesus rises from the dead. What happens next in story? There's nobody better to tell us than Luke who wrote the account of the gospel. So if you have your Bible this morning, turn to Acts chapter 1. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, right after the gospel of John. If you don't own a Bible, we would love to give you a Bible. If you'll just stop by the connection table on your way out and say, hey, I don't own a Bible, we have one for you free of charge. We want everybody to have a copy of God's Word. You can look at the Version app. If you've got a smartphone, we've got a Version app that you can look. You'll just click on live events on Version. That'll bring up all of my notes, all of the passages. It's right there want you guys to have God's word in front of you in some form. Or you can just look at the screen behind me. We'll have all the passages up there. Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Luke writes this. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up. 
after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So this is where we pick up in the book of Acts. Uh, Luke writes, and he addresses the book to someone named Theophilus. Now, there's a little bit of debate as to whether or not Theophilus was actually a real person, because the name Theophilus simply means lover of God. So it's quite possible that Luke knew someone who was named Theophilus, and he was writing to this man and friend that he knew, or it's quite possible that Theophilus is just a symbolic name for a larger audience of people who would come to read the the Gospel of Luke and then the stories in Acts. So it's quite possible that Luke wrote this book and addressed it to you and I, who are followers of Jesus, seeking to believe the content that Luke writes in the book of Acts. And the first thing that Luke does is he talks about Jesus' resurrection from the dead. He says that Jesus presents himself to the apostles bodily, that he shows up in a manner that they cannot deny that he has been risen bodily. It says that uh, Jesus was seen uh, by more than 500 people after he resurrected from the dead and stayed on earth somewhere about 40 or so odd days. And it said that during that time, he offered himself by many proofs to the disciples that he had indeed risen from the dead. There is a theory that the disciples, in their grief, simply hallucinated the resurrected Jesus. But Luke goes ahead in the first part of Acts and denies that myth. And he says, no, 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 Jesus is bodily resurrected. And he showed the disciples by many proofs and was seen by over 500 people. Over 500 people did not hallucinate that Jesus had risen from the dead. They actually saw the resurrected Christ. Another great proof that we have is that Jesus' own family, his own brothers, did not believe that he was God until after his resurrection. Listen, if you can convince, how many of you guys have siblings? If you can convince your brother that you're God... Like, that's pretty impressive, right? Like, really, like, of anybody who knows you, like, if I, my brother, Pete, leads worship, and if I were to go to Pete and be like, Pete, I'm God, he'd be like, no, you're not, only in mom's eyes. Like, yeah, like, like that, that's how that works. Like, no way that my brother would believe I've got, he's seen me grow up. He's seen the way that I live my life, and I haven't been perfect. But it says that Jesus' own brothers go, this guy's God. He's God. So we see that Jesus was not risen uh, ethereally. He was not risen theoretically. He was risen bodily. And Luke wants us to know that the resurrection actually occurs and that the disciples see it and they know him. Then Jesus orders the disciples, he commands them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the Holy Spirit. He says the Spirit was promised by the Father and had been told to them by Jesus. We're going to talk about that in just a few minutes in John 16 where Jesus promises them that when he goes away, the Helper will come. The Acts of the Apostles, which is the full name of this book, you see that maybe at the top you have the scriptures in front of you, you see that it says the Acts of the Apostles. And we do get to read a lot about the things that the Apostles do. We get to read about Peter and the disciples and Paul later on in Acts But I would contend to you that the book could actually be more properly named the Acts of the Holy Spirit. Because it's in Acts that we begin to see the Holy Spirit do an incredible work among the apostles. And without the Holy Spirit, the apostles would not have been able to do the things that they do. 
Warren Wearsby says that Acts is the account of the work of the Holy Spirit in and through the church. As the Spirit begins to work in the lives of the apostles, they begin to form what would be known as church. So if we should call it the Acts of the Holy Spirit, it raises a couple questions. Number one, it raises the question, who is the Holy Spirit, right? If we're going to call this Acts of the Holy Spirit, we've got to know who is the Holy Spirit. And secondly, we've got to know what is it that the Holy Spirit does? Who is he and what does he do? So the central truth that I want to unpack in our time remaining this morning, the one thing that I want to unpack is this truth, that the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of God given to empower the believers. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of God given to empower the believers. So let's start taking apart these two questions. The first question we have to ask, who is the Holy Spirit? Who is the Holy Spirit? I asked this question Thursday night at my missional community and got a lot of varying answers. Like we had lots of people who had different perspectives on who the Holy Spirit was. I just said, when you think about the Holy Spirit, what do you think about? What's that conjure up in your mind? And if I were to take a poll in this room, there would probably be all kinds of varying degrees and varying answers of what we think about when we think about the Holy Spirit. One of the most incorrect ways that we think about the Holy Spirit is we think that the Spirit is just this kind of mystical force. Like, if you remember, like we talked about Star Wars just a minute ago, that the Holy Spirit is this kind of mystical, all-powerful force that unites all things, and some people can tap into it, and other people can't. Or a couple years ago, there was this book written called The Shack that was really, really popular. And in The Shack, they popularized the idea that the Holy Spirit is this kind of unknowable, unattainable spirit that we can't really get our minds around. We don't really know what it is. And some of you might go, isn't the Holy Spirit that thing that makes people crazy? Like, isn't it that thing that people get snake bit for? Like, I don't know what, I don't know how I feel about that. Like, so who is the Holy Spirit? First of all, the Holy Spirit is not an indistinctive it. It's not an indistinctive it. Um, so my son was born six weeks ago tomorrow. And when he got home the first week, I, I was still kind of in this mode where he would do something. I'd be like, oh, look, it's whittling his fingers. And my wife would like slap me and she would be like, He's not an it. He's a he. Like, he's not your dog. Like, <laughs> like, he's a he. It's not an indistinctive it. In much the same way, when I call my son an it, what does it do? It devalues him as a person. In the same token, when we call the Holy Spirit an it, it devalues the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit is not an indistinctive it. He is a he. And not only is he a he, that he is God. The Holy Spirit is God. This is all throughout the scriptures. In Matthew 28, Jesus in the Great Commission says, go therefore baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Jesus equates the Holy Spirit to the Father and the Son. He doesn't say go and baptize him in the name of the Father, Son, and the Archangel Michael. He says, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He equates the Spirit with the Father and the Son. In Acts 5, Peter says that if you've lied to the Holy Spirit, you've lied to God. He equates the two, that the Holy Spirit is God. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says that the Spirit of God dwells within God's temple, equating the Spirit of God to the presence of God, that where the Spirit of God is, the presence of God is 
also, and in John 3, Jesus tells Nicodemus, it's the spirit that gives life. We understand that only God brings life where there is only death. So when Jesus says that it's the spirit that brings life, what he's doing is he's showing us that the Holy Spirit is God. So he's not an indistinctive it. He is a he. And that he is God. Now, this opens a whole bunch of questions because we start to go, okay, wait a minute, wait a minute. Okay, there's God, there's Jesus, and there's the Holy Spirit. And they're all God. How does that work out? Our system of belief is what we call Trinitarian. It means we believe in the Trinity, that God is one, but he is also three. We believe that God exists as one God in three distinct persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. We believe that God is three persons, but that each person is fully God. God the Father is not more God than God the Son. God the Son is not more God than God the Holy Spirit. And we believe that there is one God. Now, for some of you, you look at this and go, oh, that doesn't make sense to me. Yeah. I wish I could come up with some clever, like, illustration to show you, like, no, 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 it's like water. It's this is how it is. But it doesn't fully work because we can't totally wrap our minds around the idea that God is one, but he is also three. Here's why. We have a systems of belief that is based on faith. And there are going to be things that we believe that are going to be contingent upon faith. The writer of Hebrews says that faith is the assurance of things not seen, the conviction of things hoped for. There are going to be moments when we stumble across truth about God that we may not fully comprehend, but in faith we believe that God is who he says he is and will do what he's promised to do and that his word is true. And in actuality, you don't want a God that you can fully understand. Because if you have a God you can fully understand, then you become God, right? Or your God is equivalent to you. And we make terrible gods. So the, writer, so the prophet Isaiah is told, God tells Isaiah, he says, your ways are not my ways. Your thoughts are not my thoughts, declares the Lord. We understand that there are going to be things about our system of belief that we are going to accept by faith. And the Trinity is one of those things. The resurrection is another. Was anybody here to see Jesus get up from the grave? No. We take it on the fact that the apostles have borne witness to that. We base our entire system of belief on faith. Conviction of things hoped for. The assurance of things not seen. So the Holy Spirit is not some indistinct, mystical, unknowable entity. The Holy Spirit is God. He is an equal partner with the Father and the Son. So it raises the question then. If that's who the Holy Spirit is, the Holy Spirit is God. It raises the second question. What does the Holy Spirit do? What does the Holy Spirit do? If you'll flip back to uh, Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. This is the last chapter of Luke's gospel. He talks about in um, the last section of verse of chapter 24, he talks that Jesus shows up to the apostles. The apostles were standing around. The disciples were standing around. They were trying to figure out. They've heard all these stories about Jesus being resurrected. They've seen him here. They've seen him here. And they're trying to figure these things out. It says that Jesus shows up and he says, peace to you. And he starts to tell them, it's me, Jesus. And then he asks him, he goes, do you guys have anything to eat? I always thought that was really funny that Jesus like shows up and he's like, hey guys, do you have anything to eat? Like, I love that. It shows that Jesus is risen bodily. And then in verse 44, it says, Jesus said to them, 
These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I'm sending you the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So Jesus sits with the disciples and he starts to walk them through the Old Testament and show them in the Old Testament where it was prophesied that Jesus would live and where he'd be crucified and where he would rise again after three days. And he tells the disciples, he says, you are the witnesses to these things. You are going to carry out this message, not only to Jerusalem, but to the world. Because the resurrection has implications for everybody. Not just the Jews, but the Jews and the Greeks and the slaves and the free. Everyone can be changed by this good news. And he tells the disciples, you're going to be my witnesses. You're going to go. But he tells them that he's not going to send them alone that he's going to send them in the power of the Spirit of God. He says, so I want you to go and I want you to wait in Jerusalem until you are clothed with power from on high, until you are clothed with the Holy Spirit. Luke picks this up in Acts 1 when he says, John baptized you with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Luke, is Jesus is preparing the disciples that they're going to be filled with the Spirit of God and that the Spirit of God filling them is going to enable them to accomplish the work of God. And in much the same way, today, the Holy Spirit fills the life of the believer in Christ. If you are a believer in Jesus today, where you sit, the Spirit of God is living and active inside of you and is empowering you to do the work that God has called for you to do. Because the Holy Spirit empowers the believers. It empowers the believers. We receive the Spirit of God upon our trusting Jesus as Lord. God's Spirit fills us and empowers us. So the question then is, how does the Spirit empower us? How does the Spirit empower us? Okay, Holy Spirit, Spirit of God, I got that. The Spirit empowers us, okay? How does the Spirit empower us? In John 16, Jesus tells the disciples how the Spirit will empower them. John 16, starting at the second half of verse 4, Jesus says, I did not say these things to you from the beginning, beginning, because I was with you. But now I'm going to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Jesus, I believe, tells the disciples four ways that the Helper, the Holy Spirit, will come and empower them. So as we wind up this morning, I want to show you those 
four ways that Jesus promises that the Spirit will empower them and encourage you that in much the same way the Spirit works to empower you and I who are in Christ today. First, Jesus says that the Spirit will empower them by convicting them. But the Spirit convicts us of sin. The Holy Spirit of God inside of us convicts us when we sin. Now, if you are a believer in Christ, you understand this. You know that just because you've trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior doesn't mean that you'll never again do wrong, right? Some of you guys, some of you guys came in this morning. Like, it's so funny. Church, we come in, we're so not transparent. Like you come in, you pull in the parking lot, and you're like, shut up, I'll give you something to cry about. Hey, good morning. How is everybody? Man, just too blessed to be stressed. This idea, like, right? Like it convicts us of wrongdoing. Just because we're Christians doesn't mean that we're perfect. There's this battle that goes on inside of us between the Holy Spirit of God that pushes us towards righteousness and our old sinful nature that wants to glorify self. And what the Holy Spirit does is it convicts us of sin. Now, here's the interesting thing. Any moral human being, believer or not believer, can be convicted about sin. All you have to have is some sense of morality to feel bad about doing something wrong. But what the Holy Spirit does is different. It doesn't just convict us that we've done something wrong. He convicts us and shows us that our sin is first and foremost against God who is holy. And that our sinfulness is an affront to God's rule and reign in our life. That's what the Holy Spirit does. Um, if you know anything about the story of King David, in 2 Samuel, we read about David, and, and it says David and Goliath, and, and, and you've got David, who is a man after God's own heart, David, the writer of the Psalms. If anybody was varsity league Christian, it was David, right? But then in 2 Samuel, we read about David, that one night he's not where he's supposed to be, and he sees an attractive woman. And because he's the king, he says, I want that woman to be mine. And they bring the woman to David. David sleeps with the woman. And he impregnates her. And she comes back to him several weeks later and goes, hey, look, I'm, I'm having a, a baby. And so David, trying to sweep his sin under the rug, goes and he calls back her husband, who is actually fighting on the front lines for David's kingdom. And he calls back her soldier husband. And he tries a couple ways to get them together. But the man is a man of honor and will not do it. And so finally, David, in order to cover up his sin, has the man killed. And he takes his wife to be his wife. And later, the prophet Nathan approaches David and says, What you have done, the Lord has seen. There's consequences for your actions. In Psalm 51, David, Psalm 51 is a lament from David, crying out over his despair and his anguish over what he has done. And one of the things that he says in Psalm 51, he says, Against you and you alone have I sinned. Now that's an interesting statement. Because I can think of a bunch of other people that David sinned against rather than just God, right? Like he sinned against this woman. He's definitely sinned against her husband. He sinned against the whole nation of Israel because he's abused his power. But yet David in this moment says against you and you alone have I sinned. Why? Because David understands that his sin, the greatest sin that he had is against God. His holy father God. And that he sinned against the Lord first. And everything else is a trickle down from his sinning against the Lord. 
That's what the Holy Spirit does. It convicts us and it shows us that when we sin, what we have done is we have first and foremost grieved the heart of the Father and attacked his reign and rule over our lives. So the Spirit shows us how deep our sin nature is. And yet the Spirit, at the same time, shows us how deep the mercy of God is for sinners like you and I. Because the Spirit not only convicts, the Spirit corrects. The Spirit corrects. The Spirit not only shows us that what we have done is an affront to God, but it shows us, it leads us to repentance. It leads us to ask for forgiveness. It leads us to turn from our sin and run towards the Father. The power of repentance is not in the turning from, it's in the turning to. It's not what we're turning away from, it's what we're turning back towards. I heard Matt Chandler, who's a pastor in Dallas, once say that um, the mark of Christian maturity is that when I sin, I run to God, not from him. And that's what the Holy Spirit does in our life. It corrects us. It doesn't just convict us of sin and lay guilt and shame on top of us. No, 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 no. It points to our sin nature, and then it points us right to the Father who has mercy on us. And as we grow in the Spirit of God, we want to pursue righteousness. And when we sin, we want to fall before the Father and repent and say, forgive me, I've sinned. Help me to walk in righteousness. That's what the Holy Spirit does. It does no good if it just tells us that we're wrong, but doesn't show us the way that we can be made right. So the Holy Spirit convicts, the Holy Spirit corrects, the Holy Spirit comforts. Jesus calls the Holy Spirit the helper. If you call somebody your helper, what you're assuming is that this is going to be somebody who helps you, who assists you, who encourages you who challenges you, who pushes you. And that's what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit is our greatest source of comfort in this world. Jesus says, I'm not always going to be with you. And it says the disciples are sorrowful because of that. Jesus, don't go away. And Jesus says, it actually benefits you if I go away. Because when I go away, the Spirit of God will come and he'll be with you wherever you are. As a believer in Christ today, No matter what you are walking through, the Spirit of God walks through it with you. And that is of great encouragement to us. Psalm 23, you guys have heard, Yea, though I walk through the valley of shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. That's encouragement. That's the Spirit, that no matter how dark the night, no matter how deep the storm, no matter how hard the trial, that we are not alone, that the Spirit of God is with us. He empowers us. He convicts us of wrongdoing, corrects us, pushes us towards righteousness, and comforts us and shows us that we have a God who is merciful. We have a God who in Romans 8 works all things together for good towards those who love him and are called according to his purpose. That's the work of the Holy Spirit in that moment to comfort us in this life that is oftentimes very sorrowful. Finally, Spirit convicts, it corrects, it comforts, it compels us. The Spirit compels us. You see, what the Holy Spirit does in us is not only convict us of wrongdoing, not only corrects us towards righteousness, not only comforts us in our distress, but it compels us to be who it is that God has called us to be and do the work that God has called us to do compels us to do the work. It says that God sets forth. He says, this is what's going to happen. 
The, the message of the resurrection is going to go from Jerusalem to all the nations. And I'm not going to send you to do that alone. I'm going to send you my spirit that's going to empower you, that's going to compel you to do the work that I've set out before you. So when we work to be obedient to the Father and be who it is that he's called us to be in Christ and do what it is that he's called us to do, we have the Spirit of God willing and able and working to empower our lives. Let me show you this example. So what I have here is uh, a lamp. It's a pretty standard lamp. Okay, I got this from our uh, kayak room. Okay, pretty standard lamp. It's, you know, can be used as a decorative piece. It's nice to look at. Got a good chrome finish. I'll sell it to you for 20 bucks after the service is over if you want it. It's, it's a joke. Don't worry. Oh, tough room. So, uh, got this lamp, right? Now, it, it can be set on the stage. You can put it in your house. You can look at it. I mean, it's decorative. It's nice. But what was this lamp made for? It's not a trick question. Light, right? It's made to shine light. Now, you notice when I turn, nothing happens. So the lamp is unable to do the function by which it was created for. Why? Because I'm holding this thing, right? In order for the lamp to do what it was created to do, to do what it was built to do, it's got to have power. And in order for the power to get to the bulb, there's got to be something that carries the power to the lamp to do what the lamp has been created to do. So when I take the lamp and I plug it in, and the power runs through the wiring, the lamp is now able to do what it was designed to do, right? Which is shine light. In Matthew 6, Jesus says, let your light shine before men that they might see your good deeds and glorify your father who is in heaven. He says that as believers in Christ, you and I have called, are, are called to be lights in a very, very dark world. He says that God created us in his image to reflect God's glory back into creation. And the way that we reflect God's glory, Ephesians 2.10 says, is that by our good works, by working for God's glory, we reflect his image back into creation. We shine a light into the darkness. But in order for us to shine brightly as the lights we were created to be, we need what? We need power. And that's what the Holy Spirit gives us. The Holy Spirit is our power source. And it's given to us through the conduit of Jesus, the Son. And when we receive the power of the Spirit through the conduit of the Son, we are able to do what it is that we were created by the Father to do, namely shine light into the darkness. So believer, be encouraged this morning. The Spirit of God lives in you. But you are not alone. Now, the Spirit of God is living and it's active and it is your power source given to you through the gospel of Jesus. We receive the Holy Spirit when we trust Jesus as our Savior and Lord, that he has lived the life that we couldn't live, died the death that we should have died, and was risen for our justification. 
so that our sins might be forgiven and that we might live no longer to sin but to righteousness. That's the conduit. That's the wiring through which we receive the power of the Holy Spirit. And when we receive the power of the Holy Spirit, through the grace of Jesus, you and I are able to do what it is that God has created us to do. Namely, shine brightly into the darkness. So I'm asking the band to come back up and we're going to finish this morning. But how I want to finish is just by encouraging you this week. Some of you guys needed to hear this morning that the Spirit of God lives in you as a believer in Christ. Some of you might not be believers. This might not make sense to you. Might not make sense to you. When you trust Jesus as your Savior and as your Lord, it says that we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. We're empowered to do what it is that God has called us to do and made us to be. So this week, I don't know what you're facing. I don't know how you came in here. But I do know that as a believer in Christ, the same Spirit that was working, empowering the lives of the apostles is the same Spirit that works today in you and I. That that spirit is not some indistinctive, magical, powerful force. It is the very spirit of God. So this week we've talked about who is the Holy Spirit. He's not indistinctive it. He is a he. And that he is God. That the Holy Spirit is the spirit of God given to empower the believers. This week live in power knowing that the Spirit was given, that you might be who it was God made you to be and do what it is that he's called you to do. Next week, we're going to continue in this series. We're going to look at the next several verses in Acts. This morning, we answered the question, who is the Holy Spirit? What does the Holy Spirit do? Next week, I want to look at the question, why is the Holy Spirit given? Okay, it's the Spirit of God given to empower the believers, but why do believers need to be empowered? So next week, we'll jump back into Acts and we'll look at why we need to be empowered. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we're thankful for this morning. Thankful for your grace, which is the conduit through which the power of the Holy Spirit flows into our lives and enables us to be who it is you created us to be and do what it is you've created us to do. But it's all through the love and the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Father, thank you that you are a God who there are some areas that we don't understand. Thank you that you're bigger than us. You're bigger than our belief system. Father, I pray this week for the believers in this room that they would live in power knowing of the spirit of God that conquered the grave lives in them that they would walk obediently, faithfully, joyfully for your glory, for our joy, and for others' good. So in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.